Amen. Well, good morning. I want to say a special word of welcome to those of you who are new here this morning, either in person or online. My name is Alex, and uh, just delighted that you're joining us here uh, for the very first time. We've been expecting you to show up some Sunday. Thanks for making it out here today. What we're all about at Chatham Community Church, really simple. Connect people to God, to each other, so together we can engage our world for good. We hope you experience a little bit of all those things, whether you're here in person or online. This is week three of a series called Integrated Faith and Life Together. We're looking at the New Testament book of James, who is just relentless, that faith needs to make a difference, like in your personal life and in the community around you. Some of you grew up in a church experience where it was like Vegas. What happened at church stayed at church. And James is like, that's, not, that's no faith at all. A faith that stays at church or stays in the margins is no faith at all. So today we're going to talk about an issue that has plagued like governments and businesses and legal systems really from the beginning of time, and that is favoritism. How do people who have wealth or influence fame, how do they get treated in different situations? Well, many years ago before I was here, Chatham Community Church was a small little church plant and they were meeting at Perry Harrison School. And one morning, much to everyone's surprise, in walked a surprising, shocking visitor. You might have heard of him. His name was Hubert Davis. For the, for the two of you who don't know who Hubert Davis is, Hubert Davis was a, uh, like an all-star shooting guard at, at Carolina. He uh, went to the NBA. At the time, he was an analyst for ESPN. Now, of course, he's the head coach of your North Carolina Tar Heels, who had one of the most magical spring basketball runs ever. And I'm going to stop right there because I might get carried away. So in walks Hubert Davis to this small little church plant, meeting Perry Harrison School. And talking to the people who were there, they, were, they talk about the buzz, right? The, 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 the ripple effect of Hubert Davis walking in, in the church. And there wasn't a whole lot of pop, right? They were just a small setup and tear down, not a whole lot of bells and whistles. But they hoped, hoped, hoped that Hubert and his family would come back. And much to their surprise, they did. And as you talk to people who were here at the time, they talk about how it took a few weeks for everyone to kind of settle in. That had, they had a mini celebrity there in their midst. But after a couple of weeks, Hubert, his wife Leslie... They were just the Davises. And Chatham Community Church has always been an all-hands-on-deck kind of church. If you stay here longer than a couple months, we're going to ask you to do something. That's just how it is around here. And so Hubert jumped in. He was on set-up and tear now Sunday mornings. He was just serving. In fact, one of my favorite Hubert Davis stories, Pat Rose, a retiree, he's been directing traffic since, like, the church started. Day one, 15 years, he's been in the parking lot, welcoming people from the parking lot. And one day he says he was out there. It was pouring rain. And Hubert pulled up parked his car, got his kids in there, and he went outside and relieved Pat Rose. The old guy wasn't in the rain. Hubert was out there in the rain welcoming people as they pulled in. Now, what I want to clarify is this. Hubert Davis left a couple years before I got here. I did not run Hubert Davis off, I promise, okay? So just, just want to make sure that it gets registered here. But for a new church, the question, what are we going to do? What is this community going to do when a mini-celebrity shows up? And eventually, the, the groove they found was, we're going to welcome the mini-celebrity, like we're going to welcome anybody, but they're not going to be given any kind of preferential treatment. They're going to be part of our community like anybody's part of our community. They're going to be invited to serve and bring their gifts and do the things they do as a part of our community. That's just how it's going to be. Now, I hope that sounds good and right to you, but let me just say that's not human nature at all, right? Human nature, what we want is, we like being associated with wealthy people, popular people, famous people. That makes us feel good. And so throughout history... Preferential treatment has been given to the wealthy, the famous, right? That happens in the court of law. That happens their kids get into schools they shouldn't get into, like the colleges they shouldn't get into. Like all these things, right, throughout history. It happens in America, happened in the Soviet Union, happens in, uh, like in, in the feudal system, and it happened in the ancient Roman Empire. 
And when Jesus comes along, what he does is he introduces a right-side-up kingdom to an upside-down world. And in the right-side-up kingdom, in the midst of an upside-down world, what Jesus does is he tends to the poor, the marginal, the people that are often overlooked, not the wealthy, right? Not the, not the sort of the powerful or the popular. And so Jesus lives in a completely different fashion, a completely different way. And then the church gets started, right? And it starts to spread all over the Roman Empire and all these sort of things. And as the church gets started, of course, this sort of default of sort of the, this fallen, broken world is that people who are wealthy or have power or privilege, they're given sort of preferential treatment. And so James wants to address that in his letter to the churches. He wants the churches to remember Jesus, who introduced a different way of relating to wealth. And status. He wants the church to, to demonstrate the way of Jesus, particularly when it comes to not giving preferential treatment to people in power or authority or who are wealthy. That's the really hard work James is doing as we open to James chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible, turn to me James chapter 2. If not, it'll be on the screens around me and online as well. James 2, starting in verse 1, James opens with sort of his thesis statement. He says this, my brothers and sisters, Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he's promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Well, I've had several conversations as we've gotten into the book of James with several people who said, James is our favorite book. We love, like, love James. It's action-oriented. It's concrete. It's clear, right? There's something great about James. It really matches pitch with sort of Chatham County, sort of rugged, do-it-yourself kind of vibe, right? So, but I want to make something clear. If you're not rattled by James, you're not paying attention. James is going to mess with you if you let him. I got a, a friend of mine has got a podcast he started a few years ago. The title of his podcast is, This is Gonna Hurt. I don't know if anyone listens to his podcast. I don't listen to the podcast. I don't want to listen to a podcast called This Is Gonna Hurt. It doesn't sound particularly pleasant. But if James had a subtitle, it should be The Book of James, This Is Gonna Hurt. That should be a subtitle. James opens with his overarching thesis statement, right? Believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism or partiality. The literal word for partiality means uh, to receive the face. Now, if receiving the face was the precondition for favorable treatment, I would be in trouble. But the whole idea is that we don't take things at face value. We don't simply look at the surface, right? This is the thing that happens throughout history. And what we have in the scriptures from the very beginning is that God looks at something other than just the externals. In fact, at one point, God says to a prophet, he says, you're looking at look on the outside, looking at outward appearance, but God looks at the what? The heart. So James then transitions to a kind of a hypothetical, but not so hypothetical situation, right? Someone walks into the church. They look very polished. They got nice clothes. They're very kind of together. And they get the best seat in the house. Someone else comes in who is clearly poor, the markers of poverty. They get the, work, they get the worst seat in the house. They get the back row. Although here at Chatham Community Church, the back row is the preferred row, right? So if you're wealthy, you're on the 15501 row back in the back. 
And if you're poor, you get stuck in the front row here with me and my poor kids who have to sit in the front row. Have you ever been in a position to host, lead, engage with a, a group of people? And maybe on retrospect, maybe you showed a little bit of preferential treatment to the people who were more polished, more popular, more attractive, more wealthy. Let's start with this morning. What I want to do is I want to, God looks at our hearts, right? I want to surface something in our own hearts, and this is going to hurt. How much do outward appearances, whether that's job, money, influence, what other people think about that person, whatever, how much do those affect how you treat people? In our culture, what's the first question you ask someone when you meet them for the very first time? What do you? What do you do? Not a bad question, not a terrible question, but sometimes the question is a way to echolocate where are you on the social strata, right? Where are you on the totem pole? How important are you? How much do I need to defer to you. How, much do, how much do other people's job, money, status, stuff, outward appearance, how much does it affect how you treat other people? Now, about three of you are so mature, you don't need to worry about that. The rest of us, it's going to get to us. We have that issue, and it affects us. James is writing to people who are mostly poor, right? The churches are almost all poor folks. And so he's talking to them about how they relate when a wealthy person comes in to their midst. But this can also get tricky from a different angle, particularly now in 2022, when some of us have been those people. Some of you are the wealthy. No one thinks that they're wealthy, but some of, like, literally, I mean, all of us, almost all of us here in this room are on the top 1%, 2% maybe. But some of us are used to being the wealthy ones. Some of us are used to being the ones in charge. Some of you are heads of departments. Some of you are the boss. Some of you are the manager. Some of you are the top of the class. Some of you are used to being preferred, getting deferential treatment. Maybe you're the matriarch or the patriarch or the family, right? The, the scriptures say, honor your mother and father. That's biblical. Lording it over the rest of the family. That's not biblical. So part two for those of us who have any position of influence, you're a manager at work, you're a boss at work, you've been the boss, you have some money, you've got some wealth, you've been established in your career, you're established at your school, whatever. For those of us who have any influence whatsoever, how much do you expect other people to treat you with deference? Because here's the deal. Kids these days are so entitled. But it's not just the kids these days, right? Entitlement thinking is like toxic for your soul. Totally toxic for your soul. Sometimes this happens with pastors. Sometimes as pastors, we think we deserve preferential treatment and, be, and, and expect to be sort of treated with some measure of def deference. I remember several years ago when, when Jaime came to work with us and Steve Tamayo was still with us and Steve was giving him some sort of like orientation. And we're talking about Sunday morning. And down at Pittsburgh, where Jaime is the primary teaching pastor live, down at Pittsburgh, we have a small parking lot right in front of the, the main doors, and then there's a ton of parking up the hill for the Chatham Mills and Chatham Marketplace, that kind of stuff. And here's what Steve said to Jaime. He said, Steve, Steve said, Jaime, this is what kind of church we are. You're going to be one of the first ones to get here, and you're going to park the furthest away, because we're a church where pastors walk. That's what kind of church we are. Pastors walk. There's no, like, reserve for the lead pastor, reserve for the pastor spot right there by the front door. None of that. We're a church where pastors walk because we want to be pastors who are good shepherds like Jesus, who was the good shepherd. No preferential treatment based on title, based on position. We want to be people who are growing in serving. Where might you be tempted to expect deference or preferential treatment? 
James writes, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. What makes our Lord glorious, what makes our Lord so glorious is a couple things. One, he came not to be served, but to serve. He says it, he lives it out. And two, he knows that God, his good father, looks at the heart, not at the outward appearances. And so what Jesus does throughout his whole life, he does the exact same thing. He treats people according to their heart, not at outward appearances. Jesus never fawns over celebrities. Never falls for rich or for powerful. In fact, they're the ones he's most wary of along the way. So James anchors his teachings. Listen, those of you who know the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, and not all of you know Jesus, we're so glad you're here. You might be exploring, you might be checking things out. I'm here to tell you, Jesus was different. That's why he's been so attractive. Jesus was totally different from the world when it comes to how he treated the poor, the marginal versus the wealthy. That's why he is the most revered and followed religious figure in human history. He was totally different. He understood a totally different kingdom, a totally different economy. And James says, if you know that Jesus, if you're familiar with the way that he lived and talked and taught, if you love his kingdom, his right side up kingdom that he introduced to an upside down world, if you know and love that Jesus, here's what has to be true about you. You cannot show favoritism to the wealthy because Jesus refused to show favoritism to the wealthy. This works out in all kinds of subtle and not so subtle ways, right? And so as James summarizes it, he says, here's what happens if you practice this. Here's what happens when you habituate favoritism. He writes this, if you do this, have y'all, and we always love to point out that the Bible's written in Southern. God loves Southern, Southern y'all. If you do this, if you practice this kind of discrimination, this kind of favoritism, have y'all not, not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. I think y'all's selves should be a word. James is saying this, listen, here's the church. We're following Jesus, right side up in an upside down world. But if you bring in discrimination and favoritism, what you're doing is you're importing external measuring sticks into the church. It's not going to work. You cannot import the ways this world relates to wealth and status and bring it into the church and expect to be saying you're following Jesus. It's not how it works. James refuses. He says, we cannot be a people, a community, who are radically committed to Jesus and then treat people based on power, privilege, and wealth. If we habituate this, James says, we become judges with evil thoughts, right? James is relentless that what you do reinforces who you're becoming, who you become then sort of drives and dictates what you do. There's a reciprocal, right? There's a feedback loop that happens. As you do things, certain practices, you become like what you habituate. You become like what you habituate. If you habituate discriminating among people, kind of sizing them up and treating certain people among preference, among sort of based on their wealth or the status, you then become this person, judges with evil thoughts. And James says, if you become that kind of a person, then that's far from who Jesus is. Now, James continues to talk about the court situation, right? Where he says, hey, look, the wealthy are dragging you off to court and, and exploiting you. But before he gets there, he sort of points out what's been happening in the churches all over the ancient kind of Mediterranean as the church goes forward. He writes this. We read this previously. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom God promised to those who love him? So here's the deal with the ancient great Roman Empire. The ancient great Roman Empire was built on the backs of slaves. It's estimated that as many, as much as one third, one in three Roman people were slaves. Can you imagine that? One in three of you, just turn around, look to your right, to your left, one of you was a slave in the ancient Roman world. This was a massive group of used and abused and exploited people. And to those people came this really crazy great news. You are not a piece of property. You are beloved. 
you are valuable. In fact, so valuable, son of God, laid down his life, spilled his blood to forgive you of your sins, to adopt you into his family. You are not expendable, you're not disposable. You're a king or queen, a priest, a priestess in the kingdom of God. Can you imagine how refreshing that was to a slave who'd been told they were property their whole lives? Can you imagine how refreshing that was to someone who, who was told that their life was disposable to hear, no, 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 your one life is infinitely valuable. Slaves became Christians by the droves. I was listening to a podcast this past week, uh, a, a professor in India who's a Christian, he wrote a, book, he wrote a book recently. He wrote a book about Christianity in India. And in his podcast interview, he was talking about how, how, how as Christianity has taken root in India, different, wherever Christianity has taken root, it's been a blessing to the community. And he was saying, particularly as Hinduism reigns and rules, there's this cast of people called the untouchables. The untouchables are the lowest of the low. They're not real people. They're disposable. They're property. They're a mistake. Your life was miserable in the, in the previous life. You're reincarnated at the lowest of the lows. That was your fate. That's your lot in life. Just do better in this life, and maybe you'll climb the ladder to be a, I don't know, frog next time or whatever, something, right? So, that, like, that's the caste system, right? You're untouchable. And he said, when the good news of Jesus comes and penetrates that system, and says to the untouchable, you're not disposable, you're a child of God, it's revolutionary. Everywhere Christianity has taken root in India, it has blessed particularly the poorest of the poor, the untouchables. James here is saying, listen, God has chosen these people to be the most open, most receptive. These are the ones that God is sort of calling to himself, giving faith, and starting this new thing, to choose the poor to be rich in faith. Now, let me, I'm going to be honest with you, this is not how I would do it. If you wanted to change the world 2,000 years ago, if you want to change the world 2,000 years ago, do you know where you would start? Caesar. You change Caesar, you change the whole Roman world, right? Caesar. Start with the top, it works its way down to the people in the margins, right? But you know how, you know how great the counterintuitive kingdom of God is? What God does, what God does from the birth of Jesus to the, end, uh, to, the end of the, to the end of Acts, that whole story, you know what he does? He starts in the margins, it goes all the way to the top. It doesn't work that way. Where do, where do the angels announce Jesus' birth? Shepherds. You know what shepherds are? Shepherds' uh, testimony is useless in the court of law. They're so marginalized. They're so overlooked. They're so like sort of frowned upon that they, don't, they, can't even be, they can't even testify in the court of law. This is where the angels go to announce the birth of Jesus. It starts in the margins and works its way to the top. By the end of Acts, Paul is waiting to talk to Caesar. Margins to the top. One generation, no YouTube. That's not how I would do it. Grossly inefficient. Oh, but the upside down kingdom of God loves to work from the margins to the middle. Loves to work from the people on the edges to the very pinnacles of power and says, listen, the ground is level of the cross. All y'all need Jesus. <laughs> everyone is extended grace and mercy because everyone needs grace and mercy. And God in his infinite wisdom counterintuitively chooses those who are poor to be rich in faith. If we miss that, if we lose sight of that, we become judges with evil thoughts. When I was interviewing for this job about 10 years ago, I was told about a practice they had that was from the Chapel Hill Bible Church, which is the church that planted Chatham Community Church. And their practice was this. The practice was the pastors don't know who gives what around here. I have no idea how much money any of you give. You could have given Hundreds of thousands of dollars last year. I have no idea. This is my thank you to you. Thank you. If you gave hundreds of thousands of dollars. Whatever you gave. I have no idea. In fact, all of you in the lobby afterwards can say, I'm the one that gave hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'll give you a high five. Just say thank you. I have no idea. 
Because here's the deal. Nobody wants money to influence how anyone gets treated around here. Me either. But in my weakness, it could. And so by God's grace, they devised a system where I have no idea who gives what around here because I don't want to become a judge with evil thoughts, discriminating between the rich and the not so rich, the people who give, the people who don't give. So there's a firewall in place to help me to lead out of this healthier place. James is going to pivot from here, so I want to take one more pass before we go with him. And the question is this. What are some practical steps you might take to help you not show favoritism or expect favoritism from other people? Not knowing where the money comes from, who gives what. That's one practical step we've taken to help me to walk out in a way so I don't show favoritism to anybody. Pastors walk. That's a cultural practice where I park far away and walk in to make sure that I'm not getting sort of like some sort of like entitlement mentality. What are some things that you could put in place, some firewalls in your own life, some practices in your own life that you might cultivate so that you might not show preferential treatment to the rich and the wealthy because that's the most natural thing for anyone to do or to expect people to defer to you. My friends, this is where the practice of serving is so important for Jesus followers. The only way that this actually gets into your bones is if you habituate and practice serving. Chatham serves is next Saturday. It is a great opportunity for you, for your own soul, to go and serve. It's great for you, great for the kids, great for your family, to learn, to practice, to go and serve. I knew, a, I knew a really wealthy Christian family. They had some little kids, and their goal every year was to go somewhere around the world and go to go find a place that's really, really poor and just serve there so their kids did not lose sight of what was reality. Just a practice, a habit. Every year, we're going to go work with the poorest of the poor so our kids don't get a warped view of what normal is. What practices, what things might you put in place to help you not show preference to other people or to expect preferential treatment from others? Now from here, James is going to pivot a little bit. He's going to talk a little bit about how God relates to the community and even God's preferential treatment toward the poor. James writes this. He says this in verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. All right, so this can be a little confusing. Let's unpack it a little bit. This royal law James talks about, so to follow the royal law. The royal law is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, you're good. But if you show favoritism, you've broken that royal law, right? You're no longer loving your neighbor as yourself if you're favoring one neighbor over the other. And, and what, James, what James is arguing is this. If you break one small part of this law, you've broken the whole thing. You've broken the whole thing. If, this is a little counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive because in our own human experience, you break different laws. There, you know, we have misdemeanors, and we've got other things that, like, that we rank order, right? Mistakes, sins. And not every, not every mistake has the same amount of consequences, right? Which is a really good thing. Of course, that's helpful. There are way fewer consequences if you show preferential treatment than if you become a serial axe murderer, right? There's different, different consequences to those decisions. Here's, but here's, here's, here's what it means, and here's what it's like in the world and before the Lord. All sin is not equal in earthly consequences, but all sin separates and impedes our relationship with the holy good God. All sin is not equal in earthly consequences, right? There's, there's different consequences for different sins here in this world and on this earth. But all sin impedes or separates us from a holy God. See, James doesn't want us to be deluded, and this is going to hurt. Here's the bad news. God doesn't grade on a scale. 
It doesn't matter if in your estimation, you are better than 90% of the other people around there. It doesn't matter. God's not looking at your neighbor saying, I hope you're better than your neighbor. Well, God is looking at you and says, I designed you in my image to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And anytime you don't do any of those things, that's sin. You've broken the law before a holy and good God. You're not being graded on scale. There's no minor offenses in the kingdom of God. All sin separates us from the love of God. Any sin separates us from the presence of a perfect and holy God. Anything we do, anything we leave undone that we were made to do, should do, is sin. Puts us in peril, separates us from a holy and good God. It puts us in a place where we need forgiveness and where we need mercy. Forgiveness and mercy is what Jesus has come to offer us. As people who receive this forgiveness and receive this mercy, what James is arguing, what the scripture argues is this. As you receive mercy, you are to become a person of mercy, right? As we receive the mercy of God, we are to become people who then demonstrate that mercy, who live out that mercy, who know how badly we need mercy and extend it to other people, particularly toward the poor. So James is saying, listen, it's not just one little sin that doesn't matter. If you show favoritism to the wealthy person at one of your gatherings, all of this matters before holy God, and all of us are called to walk in the mercy of God and to be instruments of that mercy, particularly toward the poor. One of my favorite uh, images that I pray through, it's been this, it's been this for a couple of years, is a funnel. I pray that I'll be a funnel of grace, Mercy, truth, wisdom, beauty, shalom, through me to anyone around me. Starting with my family, church, the community. I pray that for our church, that our church will be a funnel poured through grace, mercy, beauty, justice, righteousness, love, 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 and more love out of our church into the whole community. My prayer is that love will change all of Chatham County, corner to corner, port to port. I just pray that over and over and over again. Here's the deal. Sin clogs the funnel. Sin clogs the spiritual arteries from a generous God who can't wait to pour beauty, love, truth, grace into you, through your personality, into the world around you. What God stands ready by the power of the Holy Spirit to pour as much beauty and grace and truth and love and blessing into you and through you as you can possibly handle. You are made in God's image to step into a beautiful, broken world. Go make it beautiful, more beautiful, less broken. God wants to pour grace and beauty and truth into you and through you to step into that world, to make it more beautiful, less broken. But sin clogs the spiritual arteries. Any sin clogs spiritual arteries. So less stuff, goodness of God, flows into you and through you. So one of my most regular prayers is, Jesus, would you clean out the funnel? Would you clean it out? Would you pour your blood through? Like Drano, just clean it all out. Wash me clean. Wash me clean so that I might be more free, that the, the grace and beauty and love might flow through me more freely, more recklessly to my kids, to my wife, to my neighbors. Holy Spirit, would you just come and clean out that funnel, clean out the spiritual arteries? My friends, any of you come in here today, got some stuff in your spiritual arteries clogging the way? Could be one big thing. Could be like this whole life of or things you're hiding and covering up. Could be a big, big thing. Those things come out every so often around here. Nothing ever shocks me anymore. I work with people. People are messy. Some of you have secrets. Room this full. Some of you have got big secrets. Most of us, it's like death by a thousand paper cuts, right? Just a lot of small deposits in the spiritual arteries that you've habituated, that's normal, that you're not, not really tending to anymore, that you've kind of numbed out to. And the spirit taps you on the shoulder and says, I want to do good through you. And as long as there's sin clogging the spiritual arteries, I can't, uh, there's a limit to what I can do in you and through you. And so my friends, I want to invite you 
with great joy, to know the joy of the Lord who stands ready to, to not only forgive you, but to transform you, to make you a man or woman who loves the royal law, who loves to be a certain type of person, who loves to be the person that God made you to be in the very beginning, full of his image and bringing that image to bear on all the brokenness that's in this world. But it starts with asking, asking for forgiveness, cleaning out that funnel, and asking the Lord to do something new in us. Friends, any of you got work you need to do today before the Lord, they might leave this place more poised for that beauty and truth and grace and love to pour through you into your family, into your neighbors, your neighborhood, your workplaces, anywhere God might send you. James closes with this. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I want to highlight one phrase here. Law gives freedom. That's a little bit counterintuitive for those of us who think of the law negatively, especially if you're a church person. Like, I don't want to be a law person. I don't want to be legalistic. I want to be a grace person. And, and, and we say we want more grace and not more law. But, but we know that there's laws that help to give freedom, right? I mean, think in our own country's history, uh, we had to put in child labor laws, right? We put in child labor laws because people were enslaving children. So we needed children to be children. In order for children to be free to be children, they couldn't be chained to uh, rampant capitalism that exploited them, right? So the law gave freedom to children to be children. God's law gives freedom for people made in his image to be fully human. God's law is good. His law is the path of freedom. That is the path he invites us into. And at the end of our days, all of us, every single one of us is gonna be judged according to how well did we follow the law? How much did we walk in the law that God laid out? And so we're gonna all be on that hot seat but in this passage, James points out this really good news. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And what that means is this. As whenever we participate in the mercy of God that God pours out in Jesus, that muzzles and mitigates judgment. As we participate in the, in the beautiful mercy of Jesus, we are becoming people who are merciful like Jesus invited us to become. And our participation in the mercy of Christ triumphs over the fact that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That there's a way where our participation in that helps to mitigate and balance out some of the things that are stacked against us. And ultimately, ultimately, our only hope is the mercy seat of Jesus, who was so, so committed to pouring out mercy into your life and my life, he laid down his life. Blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, so that mercy might triumph over judgment once and for all for you and for me. And so we say yes and amen to the mercy of Christ. We say yes and amen to being instruments of that mercy. And the way that works out in very practical, small ways is we say no to favoritism and no to any number of ways that the kingdom of this world would invite us into a warped relationship with one another and with God. Today's wildly important take on the most open with James's sort of opening line. Believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show Favoritism, if you are a believer in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you know he never did. And so we're invited to be people who follow in his ways, who walk in his ways. A couple questions for you. One, in what categories or with whom are you most tempted to show favoritism? This is likely already happening in some way, place, or shape, form. Like, are there a group of people, a certain type of person that you're inclined to, that you're kind of playing favorites with at work or in the family or whatever? And I want to kind of clarify something here. It's not playing favoritism. It's not favoritism to have, like, a sibling you talk to more than another sibling or a coworker you talk to more than another coworker. It is favoritism when the friend at work gets the promotion because they're close to you. It is favoritism when... The sibling you talk to more gets more of the inheritance because that's who you're closest to. Where are you tempted to play favorites 
Where are you already tempted and inclined to sort of being more favorable to someone in a slightly different way? Finally, what practical steps might you take to not show favoritism or expect favoritism from others? What's, what are some practical steps you might take to not show favoritism or expect favoritism from others? Serving. Chatham serves is one of those ways to think about that. Entitlement is a real thing. We've got to work hard to work against it. My friends, my hope and my prayer is that Chatham Community Church would do as much as we can, as best we possibly can, to match pitch with the kingdom of God, the right side of kingdom in an upside down world. My prayer, my hope, is as a community, we might be a people who are able to receive all peoples anywhere on the socioeconomic spectrum. If Hubert Davis walks in that door and someone else walks in the door, that they'll get the exact same treatment, that we would love and honor them, respect them as people who are following Jesus. And my prayer, my hope, is as we participate in that right side of kingdom, that we might come more and more alive, that the grace and mercy and beauty of Jesus might flow through us in more beautiful and free and reckless ways, and that others might know, look at our church community and say, nothing else looks like that. Wouldn't that be a great thing? Wouldn't it be a great thing if people looked at Chatham Community Church and said, nothing else in our community looks like that? Demonstration to the world, the power of the gospel, the mercy of Jesus. May we be celebrants of that, enter into it, and rejoice in it, and may we participate in it any opportunity we get. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for being a glorious Lord. Thank you for not showing preference to the rich, the powerful, those who are in positions. Thank you for being kind and merciful to us, to every one of us. Lord Jesus, I pray, I pray for folks who are here who are not yet believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. I bless them to know your mercy, to know the mercy and the grace of a good Savior. I pray for those of us who do know the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that we would delight in your ways, Jesus. I pray we'd be captivated by how merciful you are, how equitably you treated people. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we'd be shaped by that, shaped by that character, shaped by that activity, shaped by what you practice. Would we also practice welcoming the poorest of the poor? Would we also practice serving, loving? Would we be a community that looks more and more like you, Jesus, as a community? Would, these, would this room welcome all kinds of people? And would we, by the power of your spirit, be, be, be men and women made in your image through whom grace, mercy, welcome were through. Jesus, thank you for that mercy. We look to you for it. We pray in your strong mighty name. Amen, amen, amen. Why don't we